the mystery history podcast i'm allison i'm rachel welcome to episode 69 which is ted bundy part two where we're going to discuss some more crazy stuff that this guy did because he's not done yeah after an entire hour you would think that we would be through it all but no we're like halfway yep so we are glad to have you back and we'll be discussing all kinds of new things on him uh, and finishing up this tale. But before we get into it, let's talk some business. Um, again, we just wanted to shout out Jeremy for all the cool pics he's providing us. We super appreciate his help. Um, make sure that you follow him on rusthate77 on Instagram and give him some love and tell him you appreciate him too, because he does way better than we ever could. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, make sure you're liking, sharing, subscribing. Uh, we're trying to get our listeners back up. Um, so anything you can do to help us, call a buddy, bring a friend, you know, mm-hmm. get your grandma involved, whatever. Listen, <laughs> that's important. <laughs> yeah. Give us a, give us a go. <laughs> As always, hopefully not for much longer, stickers are available. They are $3 each. You pick your style, the OG mystery history logo or the true crime till I die sticker, which is my favorite. If you want to get more than just a sticker, you could join our Patreon. And Mm -hmm. if you join at the $2 or the $5 tier, we'll send you a sticker of your choosing and And a love letter (laughs) a love letter and even if you buy a sticker for three dollars and don't join the patreon i'll still write you a love letter because i love love yeah love is love is love (laughs) we always got to plug our discord so make sure you are joining that i put the link that does not expire ever in our instagram so you can click on our bio and join us and i won't have to approve you you'll just be in there Please don't join and like say, hey, you suck. Cause that I'd have to kick you. Oh no. She'll cry. You don't want that. I am very sensitive. She is actually very sensitive. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, as always, you can send us an email, mysteryhistorypod at gmail.com. Send us a message on Instagram, Facebook, or uh, send us a handy dandy voice message. We would love to play it on the show. Um, you can do that on anchor. You can do that on Instagram. I'm sure there's probably a way to do it on Facebook. Send us your voice messages, leave a comment on Apple. If you can right now, um, you know, we're trying to get more five-star reviews. So make sure Mm -hmm. you, you hit that five-star and like us, it really helps our show. It does. Oh, and if you get a sticker, take a picture and tag us in it, please. We want to see your beautiful faces. We do. We do. Um, all right. Well, is there anything else business related? We'll make that short and sweet and to the point. Yeah. All right. Quick. Let's take us away. So let's talk about where we left off. Okay. Right. So we left off with Mr. Ted explaining away the ice pick and the pantyhose mask and the rope. All of those things are just common household items he had in his vehicle and detective Jerry Thompson, um, or actually Bob Hayward stopped him and detective Jerry Thompson remembered him from being reported after the Durant kidnapping. Um, Mm -hmm. and with Cole Pfeffer's identification of him or suspected Ted of being the killer, they searched his house and they found some stuff that was pretty questionable, but they missed his collection of Polaroid pictures of his victims, which was a big Big miss. miss there. Big miss. Yeah. And, and after they left him because they couldn't hold him for anything, he destroyed those pictures. So now, yeah, there's nothing clean for you there. All right. So Salt Lake city police placed Bundy on 24 hour surveillance and Thompson flew to Seattle with two other detectives to interview Klopfer. Is that how you say it? Or is it Klopfer? However I you can say Klopfer, it. Cause it sounds more difficult and distinguished. Yeah. 
She told them that in the year prior to Bundy's move to Utah, she had discovered objects that she couldn't understand in her house and in Bundy's apartment. These items included crutches. I mean, a bag of, yeah, he used those to make people think he was disabled. But like, if you don't have a reason to have, do you have crutches at your house? I don't have crutches. Do you have crutches? You actually used them at one point. I did use crutches at one point. And do I have them in my house? No, because why do you keep crutches around? Anyways, Mm -hmm. crutches, a bag of plaster of Paris that he admitted stealing from a medical supplies house and a meat cleaver that was never used for cooking. Additional objects included surgical gloves, an oriental knife, and a wooden case that he kept in his glove compartment, and a sack full of women's clothing. Bundy was perpetually in debt, and Coffer suspected that he had stolen almost everything of significant value that he possessed. When she confronted him over a new TV and stereo, he warned her, if you tell anyone, I'll break your fucking neck. She said, yeah, that's aggressive. She said Bundy became very upset whenever she considered cutting her hair, which was long and parted in the middle. She would sometimes awaken in the middle of the night to find him under the bed covers with a flashlight examining her body. Weird. That'd be it for me. Yeah, I don't like that. Don't do weird stuff while I'm sleeping. Nope. Examining examining her body that's an interesting way to put it so you know he wasn't just like admiring what she had going on he kept a lug wrench taped halfway up the handle in the trunk of her car another volkswagen beetle which he often borrowed for protection the detectives confirmed that bundy had not been with Klopfer on any of the nights during which the pacific northwest victims had vanished nor on the day ott and nosland were abducted Shortly thereafter, Klopfer was interviewed by interviewed by Seattle homicide detective Kathy McChesney and learned of the existence of Stephanie Brooks and her brief engagement to Bundy around Christmas 1973. That's rough right there. Ooh. Not a good way to find that out. Well, because she wanted to marry him. She stuck around with him because she thought that he would marry her eventually. And that's what she ended up wanting. And she gave him money all the time and he would borrow money from her. um, And it would be, yeah, her car. Yep. So it was just a convenience type thing, I think for him, unfortunately. That's Um, too bad. In September. It's not too bad. I I would like to retract that statement. That is not too bad. (laughs) He didn't kill her. So that is good. There's that. (laughs) She got out. In September, Bundy sold his Volkswagen Beetle to a Midvale teenager. Utah police impounded it and FBI technicians dismantled and searched it. They found hairs matching samples obtained from Karen Campbell's body. Later, they also identified hair strands microscopically indistinguishable from those of Melissa Smith and Carol DeRanche. FBI lab specialist Robert Neal concluded that the presence of hair strands in one car matching three different victims who had never met one another would be a coincidence of mind-boggling rarity. That is for sure. Agreed. That's like not possible. No. So. No. On October 2nd, detectives put Bundy into a lineup. Durant immediately identified him as Officer Roseland, and witnesses from Bountiful recognized him as the stranger at the high school auditorium. There was insufficient evidence to link him to Deborah Kent, whose body was never found, but there was more than enough evidence to charge him with aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault in the Durant case. He was freed on $15,000 bail paid by his parents, and spent most of the time between indictment and trial in Seattle, living in Coffer's house. So still. Why, sister? Why? Yeah. Seattle police had insufficient evidence to charge him in the Pacific Northwest murders, but kept him under close surveillance. When Ted and I stepped out on the porch to go somewhere, Coffer wrote, so many unmarked police cars started up that it sounded like the beginning of the Indy 500. Good for them. Like, that's what... They needed to do a long time ago. Right. Yeah. Not having the evidence, but staying on him. So he can't do anything else. Mm-hmm. Or if he does, they will immediately catch him. Absolutely. 
In November, the three principal Bundy investigators, which were Jerry Thompson from Utah, Robert Keppel from Washington, and Michael Fisher from Colorado, met in Aspen, Colorado, and exchanged information with 30 detectives and prosecutors from five states. So it's different than it is now, where everything's in a database. I mean, doing murders in separate states would cause some issue because they don't know that they're looking for the same person. Right. They um, only are worried about their jurisdiction and not looking. Correct. Around so, it. So while officials left the meeting later known as the Aspen summit convinced that buddy Bundy was the murderer. They saw it. They agreed that no, that more hard evidence would be needed before he could be charged with any of the murders. That part always drives me crazy, but I mean, it makes sense that you have to wait until you have everything to prosecute, but it's always like, uh, if you know, I don't know. And it sucks. Well, because then on top of that, if you don't have enough evidence and then something comes up, but he was already charged for the murder, you know, tried for the murder, it's double jeopardy. You can't be charged twice. So that's yeah it and the the system is very broken because unfortunately if you see somebody murder somebody you still need evidence like you need evidence and more importantly you need a body because Mm -hmm. they're not dead unless you have a body essentially like in the court's eyes and that's you know these some of these people they never found their bodies Mm -hmm. yeah in February 1976, Bundy stood trial for the Durange kidnapping. On the advice of his attorney, John O'Connell, Bundy waived his right to a jury due to the negative publicity surrounding the case. After a four-day bench trial and a weekend of deliberation, Judge Stuart Hansen Jr. found him guilty of kidnapping and assault. In June, he was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in the Utah State Prison. In October, he was found hiding in bushes in the prison yard carrying an escape kit, roadmaps, airline schedules, and a social security card, and spent several weeks in solitary confinement. Later that month, Colorado authorities charged him with Karen Campbell's murder. After a period of resistance, he waived extradition proceedings and was transferred to Aspen in July 1977. Yes, so... This is looking good for him at this point, right? I mean, this is not good for him. He's, they got him. They got him. And this escape kit is foreshadowing. (laughs) Yeah. What he's thinking about doing. Yep. On June 7th, 1977, Bundy was transported 40 miles from the Garfield jail in Glenwood Springs to Picton County Courthouse in Aspen for a preliminary hearing. He had elected to serve as his own attorney because he's just, you know, fabulous. So good. Yeah. Yeah. And as such was excused by the judge from wearing handcuffs or leg shackles during the recess. He asked to visit the courthouse law library to research his case. He did this not just now, but he would have special because he was acting as his own attorney. He was pretty much able to go to the library whenever he wanted to research cases and things like that. So this wasn't something out of the norm for him to do. Mm-hmm. While shielded from his guard's view behind a bookcase, he opened a window and jumped to the ground from the second story, injuring his right ankle as he landed. After shedding an outer layer of clothing, he walked through Aspen as roadblocks were being set up on its outskirts. Then he hiked southward out onto Aspen Mountain. Near its summit, he broke into a hunting cabin and stole food, clothing, and a rifle. Thank God nobody was home. Right. The following day, he left the cabin and continued south toward the town of Crested Buttle, but became... Butte. Crested Butte. What did I say? Buttle? Buttle? There's not an L in there. I like Buttle better. It's Well, it's not what you like. It's English, and it's Crested Butte. That sounds gross. Crested Butt. But... <laughs> But he became lost in the forest, and for two days, he wandered aimlessly on the mountain, missing two trails that led downward to his intended destination. Bummer. Good. Good. Yep. On June 10th, he broke into a camping trailer on Maroon Lake, which was 10 miles south of Aspen, and he took food and a ski parka. But instead uh, of continuing southward, he walked back north towards Aspen, eluding roadblocks and search parties along the way. 
Three days later, he stole a car at the edge of Aspen golf course, cold sleep deprived and in constant pain from his ankle. He drove back into Aspen where two police officers noticed his car weaving in and out of its lane and pulled him over. He had been a fugitive for six days. In the car were maps of the mountain area around Aspen that prosecutors were using to demonstrate the location of Karen Campbell's body, indicating that this escape was not a spontaneous act, but it had been planned. Hmm. Well, yeah, because he ditched his clothes. He had clothes underneath them. I mean, yeah, he had thought this through. (laughs) Yeah. Not, not well enough, apparently. No. But he's not as smart as he likes to think that he is. Thank goodness. Back in jail in Glenwood Springs, Bundy ignored the advice of friends and legal advisors to stay put. The case against him, already weak at best, was deteriorating steadily as pre-trial motions consistently resolved in his favor and significant bits of evidence were ruled inadmissible. A more rational defendant might have realized that he stood a good chance of acquittal and that beating the murder charge in Colorado would probably have dissuaded other prosecutors with as little as a year and a half to serve on the Darage conviction. Had Ted persevered, he could have been a free man. Instead, yeah, Ted. And he thinks he knows everything and he's great, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So instead, Bundy assembled a new escape plan. He acquired a detailed floor plan of the jail and a hack sale. Hawk, oh my goodness. E, boot, butt. Butt, buttles, and a hacksaw blade from other inmates and accumulated $500 in cash smuggled in over a six-month period. He later said by visitors, Carol Ann Boone in particular, during the evenings, while other prisoners were showering, he sawed a hole about one square foot between the steel reinforcing bars and his cell ceiling and, having lost 35 pounds, was able to wriggle through it into the crawl space above. How did he get his hips through that? They were skinnier back then. A square foot? That's a ruler. I don't that's know. Like my, my shoulders? Yeah. Can you skinny out your shoulders? I mean, those would not go through that. That would be, he was teensy tiny. In the weeks that followed, he made a series of practice runs, exploring the space. Multiple reports from an informant of movement within the ceiling during the night were not investigated. So people were like, Hey, something's in the ceiling. And the guards were like, okay. Right. It's a (laughs) raccoon. No, it's Ted. (laughs) Yeah. Skinny, skinny Teddy wriggling around in the roof. (laughs) By late 1977, Bundy's impending trial had become a cause celebrity in the small town of Aspen, and Bundy filed a motion for a change of venue to Denver. On December 23rd, the Aspen trial judge granted the request, but to Colorado Springs, where juries had historically been hostile to murders. So that didn't work out. Um, No. On the night of December 30th, with most of the jail staff on Christmas break and nonviolent prisoners on furlough with their families, Bundy piled books and files in his bed, covered them with a blanket to simulate him his sleeping body, and climbed into the crawl space. He broke through the ceiling into the apartment of the chief jailer, who was out for the evening with his wife. He changed into street clothes from the jailer's closet and walked out the front door. He just walked out the front door. I mean, that's suspicious. That really makes me question what was going on at that jail because they would have, like, wouldn't you think everybody there would have known him, like known what he looked like? Yeah. So nobody's paying attention to who's going in and out of the jail. He's a master of disguise, I guess. Mr. Cop Roseland. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Teddy Roseland. That's crazy that he just walked right out. How dumb After, do they look? I mean, I know, like, how dumb. How dumb. <laughs> what a very insecure jail or prison or whatever it is. After stealing a car, Bundy drove eastward out of Glenwood Springs, but the car soon broke down in the mountains on Interstate 70. A passing motorist gave him a ride into Vail, 60 miles to the east. From there, he caught a bus to Denver, where he boarded a morning flight to Chicago. Back in the day, you didn't need things. 
I know. I'm sitting here thinking like to fly now, like you need, like, what was the TSA doing? You need a license at least, right? Did you not need that back then? You could smoke on airplanes back then. (laughs) They did not care. No. (laughs) At all. So in Glenwood Springs, the jail skeleton crew did not discover the escape until noon on December 31st, more than 17 hours later. By then, Bundy was already in Chicago. Yeah, he was. He was gone. He was gone. That's wow. Glenwood Springs. with the old walk right out the front door trick. Do better, people. (laughs) Do better. That's ridiculous. But, like, not only did they let him walk out the front door, but then they didn't even notice he was gone for 17 hours. That's a lot. I mean, I feel like they do, like, hourly checks. Yeah, I think they're supposed to. Yeah. Of some sort. I mean, that's crazy. All right. So he's in Chicago. But from Chicago, he traveled by train to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he was present in a local tavern on January 2nd. Five days later, he stole a car and drove south to Atlanta, where he boarded a bus and arrived in Tallahassee. On the morning of January 8th, he stayed for one night at the Holiday Inn before he rented a room under the alias Chris Hagen at a boarding house near the Florida State University. So now he's smart enough to change his name. Yeah. Chris Hagen, like we talked about in our last episode, is similar to Chris Hansen, who I love. It is. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Bundy later said that he initially resolved to find legitimate employment and refrained from further criminal activity, knowing he could probably remain free and undetected in Florida because you can do anything in Florida. Right. I, as long as he did not attract the police attention, but his loan job application at a construction site had to be abandoned when he was asked to provide identification. He reverted to his old habits of shoplifting and stealing money and credit cards from women's wallets left in shopping carts at local grocery stores. That didn't take long. Nope. Right back into the life of crime. In the early hours of January 5th, 1978, one week after his trial and his arrival in Tallahassee, Bundy entered FSU's Chi Omega sorority house through a rear door with a faulty locking mechanism. Beginning at about 2.45 a.m., he bludgeoned Margaret Bowman, 21, with a piece of oak firewood as she slept, then garroted her with a nylon stocking. He then entered the bedroom of 20-year-old Lisa Levy and beat her unconscious, strangled her, tore one of her nipples, bit deeply into her left buttock, and sexually assaulted her with a hair mist bottle. In an adjoining bedroom, he attacked Kathy Kleiner, breaking her jaw and deeply lacerating her shoulder, and Karen Chandler, who suffered a concussion, broken jaw, loss of teeth, and a crushed finger. Chandler and Kleiner survived the attack. Kleiner attributed her survival to an automobile headlights illuminating the interior of their room and frightening away the attacker. That is insane. And I think so he, you said January 5th and it's January 15th. Oh, okay. Yeah. 15th, just to, one yeah. week after. Okay. Yes. He like really just got Did there and then, yeah, was like, I'm going to be an upstanding citizen and not break the law. And then all of that really went downhill quick. When it seems like because he was trying to be good, this was just like, three people yeah in... like making up for lost time and mm-hmm. his free bundy escaped the sorority house but not before being seen by sorority sister nita neary who came through the back door and saw bundy as he was exiting the sorority house tallahassee detectives determined that the four attacks took place in a lot in a total of less than 15 minutes within earshot of more than 30 witnesses who heard nothing so even just like if, think, yeah. I mean, even if you're asleep, I feel like if something hits you, your body would make a some sort of like ugh or so, like some sort of sound. Right. So the fact and that he in crushing bludgeoning somebody, that's gotta that's be loud. loud. Yeah. Yeah. And and a, a sound that one does not typically hear. So mm-hmm. it would bring attention, you would think. After leaving the sorority house, Bundy broke into a basement apartment eight blocks away and attacked FSU student Cheryl Thomas, 
dislocating her shoulder and fracturing her jaw and skull in five places. She was left with permanent deafness and equilibrium damage that ended her dance career. On Thomas's bed, police found a semen stain and a pantyhose mask containing two hairs, similar to Bundy's in class and characteristic. It seems to me like he knew this was the last hurrah, almost. Like, he had to get it in now or he was never going to be able to. Or, you know, after maybe the first one, then he's just like, screw it. I'm going to do it all. Yeah, it just went completely insane. That's terrible. This, yeah. And it's These all, he was girls. in jail. If he would have just been locked up and stayed there, Properly. these girls would have been fine. Right. On February 8th, Bundy drove 150 miles east to Jacksonville in a stolen FSU van. In a parking lot, he approached 14-year-old Leslie Perimeter, Perimeter, the daughter of Jacksonville Police Department Chief of Detectives, identifying himself as Richard Burton Fire Department, but retreated when Perimeter's older brother arrived and challenged him. Thank God for that. Um, mm-hmm. That afternoon, he backtrotted 60 miles west to Lake City. At Lake City Junior High School, the following morning, 12-year-old Kimberly Diane Leach was summoned to her homeroom by a teacher to retrieve a forgotten purse, but she never returned to her class. Seven weeks later, after an intensive search, her partially mummified remains were found in a pig-farrowing shed near Swanee River State Park, 35 miles northwest of lake city she appeared to have been raped then killed by neck lacerations with a knife my goodness just a baby Mm -hmm. awful on february 12th with insufficient cash to pay his overdue rent and a growing suspicion that police were closing in on him bundy stole a car and fled tallahassee driving westward across the florida panhandle Three days later, at around 1 a.m., he was stopped by Pensacola police officer David Lee near the Alabama state line after a once in warrants check showed his Volkswagen Beetle was stolen. When told he was under arrest, Bundy kicked Lee's legs out from under him and took off running. Lee fired a warning shot, followed by a second round, gave chase, and tackled him. The two struggled over Lee's gun before the officer finally subdued and arrested Bundy. In the stolen vehicle were three sets of IDs belonging to female FSU students, 21 stolen credit cards, and a stolen television set. Also found were a pair of dark-rimmed, non-prescription glasses and a pair of plaid slacks, later identified as the disguise worn by Richard Burton Fire Department in Jacksonville. As Lee transported his suspect to jail, unaware that he had just arrested one of the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives, He heard Bundy say, I wish you had killed me. That might have been what he was going for. Well, like running like that. I mean, yeah, he was probably just like completely trying to fully get away and with no concern for his bodily health, probably. So good on that officer for getting him. Because who knows if he would have escaped again, what would have happened? Yeah, he had to really give him chase and over a stolen vehicle, not that big of a, right. I mean, it's a big deal. Don't do it, but yeah. Following a change of venue to Miami, Bundy stood trial for the Chi Omega homicides and assaults in June 1979. The trial was covered by 250 reporters from five different continents and was the first to be televised nationally in the United States. Despite the presence of five court-appointed attorneys, Bundy again handled much of his own defense because he's the best, apparently. From the beginning, he sabotaged the entire defense effort out of spite, distrust, and grandiose delusion, Nelson later wrote. Ted was facing murder charges with a possible death sentence, and all that mattered to him, apparently, was that he be in charge. Well, he was in charge, and he screwed himself. Thank God. And there's a picture here that you added of him leaving a preliminary hearing and he's just smiling. It was a show. It was, he was a like celebrity ring leader. Yeah, yeah. Like this is his circus. Yep. He was According having a good to, time. Yeah. Like he looks so happy to be in the limelight. What a disgusting human. 
According to Mike Minerva, a Tallahassee public defender and member of the defense team, a pretrial plea bargain was negotiated in which Bundy would plead guilty to killing Levy, Bowman, and Leach in exchange for a firm 75-year prison sentence. Prosecutors were amenable to a deal by one account because prospects of losing at a trial were very good. Bundy, on the other hand, saw the plea deal not only as a means of avoiding the death penalty, but also as a tactical move. He could enter his plea, then wait a few years for evidence to disintegrate or become lost and for witnesses to die, move on, or retract their testimony. Once the case against him had deteriorated beyond repair, he could file a post-conviction motion to set aside the plea and secure an acquittal. At the last minute, however, Bundy refused the deal. It made him realize he was going to have to stand up in front of the whole world and say he was guilty, Minerva said. He just couldn't do it. Because he thought he was going to get out of it. He thought, and even if they did put him in prison with escaping twice, he probably just thought, well, I'll just escape again. Right. At trial, crucial testimonies came from Chai Omega sorority members Connie Hastings, who placed Bundy in the vicinity of the Chai Omega house that evening, and Nita Neary, who saw him leaving the sorority house clutching the oak murder weapon. Incriminating physical evidence, including impressions of the bite wounds Bundy had inflicted on Lisa Levy's left buttock, which for forensic odontist Richard Sovin and Lowell Levine matched to casting, I'm sorry, castings of Bundy's teeth. So really what the final nail in the coffin was, was these teeth imprints. Right. He had a very distinguishable bite. Yep. Mm -hmm. So the jury deliberated for less than seven hours before convicting him on July 24th, 1979 of the Bowman and Levy murders three counts of attempted first-degree murder for the assaults on Kleiner, Chandler, and Thomas, and two counts of burglary. Trial Judge Edward Cower imposed death sentences for the murder convictions. Six months later, a second trial took place in Orlando for the abduction and murder of Kimberly Leach. Bundy was found guilty once again after less than eight hours' deliberation due principally to the testimony of an eyewitness who saw him leading Leach from the schoolyard to his stolen van. Important material evidence included clothing fibers with an unusual manufacturing air found in the van and on Leach's body, which matched fibers from the jacket Bundy was wearing when he was arrested. Ooh, that's good stuff right there. Mm -hmm. During the penalty phase of the trial, Bundy took advantage of an obscure Florida law providing that a marriage declaration in court in the presence of a judge constituted a legal marriage. As he was questioning former Washington State DES co-worker Carol Ann Boone, who had moved to Florida to be near to Bundy, had testified on his behalf during both trials and was again testifying on his behalf as a character witness. He asked her to marry him. She accepted and Bundy declared to the court that they were legally married. So there's another circus. (laughs) Yeah, just another display of look what I can do. I can do whatever I want. I just got married. He's a mess. On February 10th, 1980, Bundy was sentenced for a third time to death by electrocution. As the sentence was announced, he reportedly stood and shouted, tell the jury they were wrong. This third death sentence would be the one ultimately carried out nearly nine years later. In October 1981, Boone gave birth to a daughter and named Bundy as the father. While conjugal visits were not allowed at Rayford Prison, inmates were known to pool their money in order to bribe guards to allow inmates time alone with their female visitors. Why would anybody? This lady is fucking nuts. Seriously. And and, um, Liz stood by him for quite a while. I don't think we talk much about Liz, but um, she stayed with him for quite some time, but then decided, you know, finally was like, I'm Can't done. Do this anymore. I'm done. Yeah. And very soon after that, I think he had Carol Boone waiting in the wings for, and I think he just didn't want to be alone. So he would have married anybody. And she's yeah, anybody just that freaking dumb. To him. Yeah, seriously. What's the, what's the draw there? Right. And then to name your child Bundy. Like, no, 
Never. Oh wait, no, she didn't name the daughter Bundy. But named she it named... after his named Bundy. Yeah. So the the last name is Bundy. Oh, okay. I was gonna say it just says she named Bundy as the father, but I guess yeah. that would make sense that the child would have his last name. I'd be changing yeah. that shit as soon as I could say words. Immediately. <laughs> yeah. Shortly after the conclusion of the Leach trial and the beginning of the long appeals process that followed, Bundy initiated a series of interviews with Stephen Mygood and Hugh Ainsworth. Speaking mostly in third person to avoid the stigma of confession, he began for the first time to divulge details of his crimes and thought processes. So that's like super creepy. Yeah. To talk about yourself in third person. Yeah. I don't know. The whole thing is just, he's nuts. He's nuts. Have you listened to those? I've listened to some of his, yeah, some of his, and he's yeah, so, like, he acts like he's so smart and well-educated mm-hmm. and he knows exactly what he's doing. And like, it's just sickening. Like mm-hmm. you're a psychopath. Yeah. He recounted his career as a thief, confirming Cole Pfeffer's longtime suspicion that he had shoplifted virtually everything of substance that he owned. He said, the big payoff for me was actually possessing whatever it was I had stolen. I really enjoyed having something that I had wanted and gone out and taken it. Possession proved to be an important motive for rape and murder as well. Sexual assault, he said, fulfilled his need to totally possess his victims. At first, he killed his victims as a matter of expediency to eliminate the possibility of being caught, but later murder became part of the adventure. The ultimate possession was, in fact, the taking of the life, he said, and then the physical possessions of the remains. Ew. He's awful. Yes. Bundy also confided in special agent William Hagmeyer of the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit. Hagmeyer was struck by the deep, almost mystical satisfaction that Bundy took in murder. He said that after a while, murder is not just a crime of lust or violence, Hagmeyer related. It becomes possession. They are part of you. The victim becomes a part of you, and you two are forever one. And the grounds where you kill them or leave them become sacred to you. And you will always be drawn back to them. That is just so awful. Bundy told Hagmeyer, go ahead. What were you going to say? No, I'm just sitting like, that's absolutely. And you hear that a lot that it's the, you know, keeping the possession of keeping something of theirs or visiting where Mm -hmm. they, where you took them. It's just it's just that whole like sentence of what I just read it's like romanticizing one of the most awful things that you could possibly do Mm -hmm. I mean it is like the most awful thing you could possibly do and it just it sounds like all romantic but it's so disgusting and terrible Mm -hmm. Bundy told Hagmeyer that he considered himself to be an amateur an impulsive killer in his early years before moving into what he termed his prime or predator phase at about the time of Linda Healy's murder in 1974. This implied that he began killing well before 1974, although he never explicitly admitted having done so. Yeah. So I, I would assume that there are more victims that we'll never know of. Right. Which is so terrible for those families. Mm-hmm. So I'll never get that closure. Mm-hmm. In July 1984, Rayford guards found two hacksaw blades hidden in Bundy's cell. A steel bar in one of the cell windows had been sawed completely through at the top and bottom and glued back in place with homemade soap-based adhesive. Several months later, guards found an unauthorized mirror and Bundy was again moved to a different cell. So they're starting to get a little smart now. Yeah, they're making sure he's not breaking out as best as they are capable. Mm -hmm. Shortly thereafter, he was charged with a disciplinary infraction for unauthorized correspondence with another high-profile criminal, John Hinckley Jr., In October 1984, Bundy contacted Robert Keppel and offered to share his self-proclaimed expertise in serial killer psychology in the ongoing hunt in Washington for the Green River Killer, later identified as Gary Ridgway. 
Keppel and Green River Task Force Detective Dave Riker interviewed Bundy, but Ridgway remained at large for a further 17 years. Keppel published a detailed documentation of the Green River interviews and later collaborated with Micah on another examination of the interview material. So, like, not super helpful if he was still out there for 17 more years. No, but he always wanted to be, I guess he always wanted to be the best at whatever he was doing, so... Now it was helping the police to try to understand the psychology. <laughs> Probably just wanted attention mm-hmm. from somebody. In early 1986, an execution date March 4th was set on the Chai Omega convictions. The Supreme Court issued a brief stay, but the execution was quickly rescheduled. In April, shortly after the new date was announced, Bundy finally confessed to Hagmeyer and Nelson what they believed was the full range of his depredations, including details of what he did to some of his victims after their death. He told them he revisited Taylor Mountain, Isaquah, and other secondary crime scenes often several times to lie with his victims and perform sexual acts with their decomposing bodies until putrefaction forced him to stop. I feel like that would happen very quickly, but I guess up in a mountain. It's in the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. Gross. Uh, In some cases, he drove for several hours each way and remained the entire night. In Utah, he applied makeup to Melissa Smith's lifeless face, and he repeatedly washed Laura Amy's hair. If you've got time, he told Hagmeyer, there can be anything you want. They can be anything you want them to be. He decapitated approximately 12 of his victims with a hacksaw and kept at least one group of severed heads, probably the four later found on Taylor Mountain which is would be Rancourt, Parks, Ball, and Healy, in his apartment for a period of time before disposing of them. So he kept them around for a while. It's interesting, like, the things that he did that could have very well got him caught, like going back over and over to these places and keeping heads around your apartment, like... And spending the whole night next to a body, I mean, whoa. Yeah, Less than 15 hours before the scheduled July 2nd execution, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals stated indefinitely and remanded remanded the Chi Omega case for review on multiple technicalities, including Bundy's mental competency to stand trial and an erroneous instruction by the trial judge during the penalty phase requiring the jury to break a 6-6 tie between life imprisonment and the death penalty, which ultimately were never resolved. A new date, November 18th, 1986, was then set to carry out the Leach sentence. The 11th Circuit Court issued a stay on November 17th. In mid-1988, the 11th Circuit ruled against Bundy, and in December, the Supreme Court denied a motion to review the ruling. Within hours of that final denial, a firm execution date of January 24th, 1989 was announced. Bundy's journey through the appeals court had been unusually rapid for a capital murder case. Contrary to popular belief, the courts moved Bundy as fast as they could. Even the prosecutors acknowledged that Bundy's lawyers never employed delaying tactics. Though people everywhere seethed that the apparent delay in executing the Archdemon, Ted Bundy was actually on the fast track. Yeah, because sometimes it can take years for that stuff. And how and there's like, reasons why they do take years because yeah. like how often do they find evidence or things where somebody that was and even if it's like one time in a billion years, it's worth it. But yeah. like not in this case. Well, how <laughs> just putting yourself in their shoes when you when a de- day is set and you know you're gonna get executed that day. And then they keep changed, like, like the day before. Yeah. Yeah. Like where you wake up that morning and you're like, okay, today's the day. And then there's a stay and you have, you know, another, like, I just, I would not be able to deal with that. (laughs) Yeah. Just just do it and get it over with. I feel like it would take a lot of mental preparation to know that you were going to be executed and try to like keep your shit together. And then, yeah, Yeah. for them to be like, no, we're going to wait a little while longer. Yeah, for sure. I'd be like, just get it over with. With all the appeal avenues exhausted and no further motivation to deny his crime, Bundy agreed to speak frankly with investigators. He confessed to Keppel and he had committed all eight Washington and Oregon homicides for which he was the prime suspect. 
He described three additional previously unknown victims in Washington and two in Oregon whom he declined to identify if indeed he ever knew their names. He said he left a fifth corpse, Donna Manson's on Taylor Mountain, but incinerated her head in Culpepper's fireplace. Um, he described the Azaquah crime scene where the bones of Ott, Naslin, and Hawkins were found, and it was almost like he was just there, Keppel said, like he was seeing everything. He was infatuated with the idea because he spent so much time there. He is just totally consumed with murder all the time. Nelson's impressions were similar. It was the absolute misogyny of his crimes that stunned me, she wrote. His manifest rage against women. He had no compassion at all. He was totally engrossed in all the details. His murders were his life accomplishments. And the and his death, too. Like, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. His manifest rage against women. It's interesting that like he had this rage against women and yet had these women in his life that were around and were like, one of them was just his friend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's weird. Well, and some, some people try to associate it with like his mother and her lying to him that's why he has an issue with women and all of that stuff i i understand that psychology especially in a young child is super critical of their development but something's broken in there like it wouldn't oh, have mattered yeah. if it was the president of the united states kid like something's wrong there yeah something wasn't right Bundy confessed to detectives from Idaho, Utah, and Colorado that he had committed numerous additional homicides, including several that were unknown to the police. He explained that when he was in Utah, he could bring his victims back to his apartment where he could reenact scenarios depicted on the covers of detective magazines. A new ulterior strategy quickly became apparent. He withheld many details, hoping to parlay the incomplete information into yet another stay of execution. There are other buried remains in Colorado, he admitted, but refused to elaborate. The new strategy, immediately dubbed Ted's Bones for Time scheme, served only to deepen the resolve of authorities to see ben Bundy executed on schedule and yielded little new detailed information. In cases where he did give details, nothing was found. Colorado detective Matt Linvall's Linval interpreted this as a conflict between his desire to postpone his execution by divulging information and his need to remain in total possession, the only person who knew his victims' true resting places. That's so sick. Like, I wonder if that is actually true, though. Like, do you think also that maybe he was making shit up? If it were like, me, I would. Like, yeah, just that's like to... a definite possibility. Mm -hmm. When it became clear that no further stays would be forthcoming from the courts, Bundy's supporters began lobbying for the only remaining option, executive clemency. Diana Warner, a young Florida attorney and Bundy's last purported love interest, asked the families of several Colorado and Utah victims to petition Florida Governor Bob Martinez for a postponement to give Bundy time to reveal more information. If I was one of the families, I would spit in her face. I wonder like, if they knew that she was like in cohorts, like they were. Yeah. Cows. Yeah. I don't know. All of them refused. Good for them. Um, mm -hmm. They said the, the families already believed that the victims were dead and that Ted had killed them, wrote Nelson. They didn't need his confession. Martinez made it clear that he would not agree to further delays in any case. We are not going to get, have the system manipulated, he told reporters. For him to be negotiating for his life over the bodies of victims is despicable. 100,000%. That's yeah. disgusting and terrible. Yeah. Boone had championed Bunny's in innocence throughout all of his trials and felt deeply betrayed by his admission that he was, in fact, guilty. She moved back to Washington with her daughter and refused to accept his phone call on the morning of his execution. She was hurt by his relationship with Diana, Nelson wrote, and devastated by his sudden wholesale confessions in his last days. Mm -hmm. So she's like mentally, uh, obviously in the first place, but then two, if she's championing for his innocence and then gets upset when he confesses, like she, 
Did she really not believed know? he was yeah well, he must have really believed she, he was not guilty not just a river in egypt right Hagmeyer was present during Bundy's final interviews with investigators. On the eve of his execution, he talked of suicide. He did not want to give the state the satisfaction of watching him die, Hagmeyer said, because he just had to be in control. Well, too bad, bro. Yeah. Bundy died in the Rayford electric chair at 716 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on January 24th, 1989. Hundreds of revelers sang, danced, and set off fireworks in a pasture across from the prison as the execution was carried out, then cheered as the white hearse containing Bundy's corpse departed the prison. He was cremated in Gainesville and his ashes scattered at an undisclosed undisclosed location in the Cascade Range of Washington State in accordance with his will. Some people say that he asked to be cremated and scattered where the bodies were buried. Ew. to be with Did like his do that? I don't know I don't know how that works being you know getting Incarcerated the death sentence and, and dying then, until, yeah yeah I don't know how that works I certainly hope not because yep. if my family was out there with his ashes that would piss me off yeah but um people in the streets were really happy like we kind of mentioned that the execution took place and they were basically having a huge party and they were selling t-shirts. So you could get a t-shirt that says, uh, Tuesday is Friday, like fry, like we're frying you. Uh, one sign said roses are red, violets are blue. Good morning, Ted. We're going to kill you, (laughs) which I mean, Yeah. yeah. So all in all, Ted confessed to 36 murders, um, but there are 14 plus more victims that he could have been responsible for. So, and now we'll never know. Yep, we'll never know. And I don't know if we ever really would have known anyway. No, you know, anyways. Yeah, probably. I mean, at some point, you can't trust what he's saying any longer. And he always wanted to be in control, so he could have took this to being responsible for 500 people's murder. I mean, it could have just continued forever. Right. At some point, it sounds like he was trying to just make stuff up. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So to cite Um, our sources, uh, we went to biography.com, allthatsinteresting.com, oxygen, crimepiperblog.woodpress.com, distractify, and murderpedia. So we hope that you enjoyed this episode 69 of Ted Bundy part two and let us know how you feel about it. I mean, he's been very publicized. We've had the, the movie with um, what's his face. Zach Efron. Oh yeah. Which I enjoyed it. It was more of a romantic thing. I feel like, like Mm -hmm. not so much about the killing itself, but then there's this new one coming out with Chad, Michael Murray. Is there? Yeah. And I'll tell you what, so Chad Michael Murray, you wouldn't think yeah. he could be like creepy, but he can be. I don't know if you watch Riverdale, but he was the a cult leader in Riverdale on the later episodes. He did I don't think really... I made it that far in oh, Riverdale because I he, did watch some of it. He did a fantastic job. I can see him being creepy as hell. So I'm, I'm excited. And some people are like, well, it's like a watch the same thing 15,000 times. Well, yeah, you do. But there's so many that every time I watch something or I read something, I always find something that I didn't know. Um, Mm -hmm. So my memory is terrible too. So like, I've read a lot about Ted Bundy and I've seen the movies too, but there's always things that you forget or Mm -hmm. something that wasn't mentioned before. So, yep. So, yeah, all right. Well, we'll, I'm sure we'll have comments whenever that comes out and we'll watch it and let have you know how. Yeah. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode and we will see you next time. Bye guys. Bye.